2: Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. If this is your first time listening, thank you. It's undoubtedly because of our guest today, Casey St. Onge. You know that trending hashtag on Twitter, Obama Commitment? Well, her son Lincoln started that. That's him. Uh, She and I talked before that went down, so we don't talk about it here. But how cool, right? She's had an interesting couple of weeks with that. I really hope that happens, too. We need this. We need an Obama commencement. I bet he'll do it. But if he can't, uh, then maybe I can't. (laughs) Maybe not. Uh, The whole commencement speech would just be me going, uh, look. So let's just hope the real President Obama does it. As some of you know, this podcast started on June 7th of 2016 because June 7th is the day Prince was born. And I wanted to find a way to honor him. That was my way of honoring Prince. Casey and I bonded over Prince on Twitter. And it just so happens that today is the fourth anniversary of his passing. This was not planned. She and I had actually been looking at a date to do the interview for months, so this is just how the cookie crumbled. I had no idea until yesterday, or I forgot, Uh, that today was the anniversary of his passing. So it's just kind of like a poetic thing that came out of this. A little Prince Majesty, I suppose. Fittingly, this conversation starts with us talking about Prince before we start talking about her illustrious career, She has so much awesome stuff to talk about here. She's really awesome herself. I really liked her a lot. But after this interview, she became one of my favorite people. So here's my chat with Casey St. Onge. I don't remember exactly when we first interacted. I know it was on Twitter. And I know that we bonded over Prince.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds about right.
2: Yeah, I don't. I just... I can I was trying to figure this out earlier trying to rack my brain like I remember when we got associated like when we started talking but um I wasn't like just going by your Twitter name and uh and like your picture I wasn't like super aware of who you were and then i clicked and saw like a bunch of print stuff i was like she's awesome she likes prints and then we like talked about that a little (laughs) bit and then i saw your work
1: (laughs) i know it's weird i do that all the time too i just find that you find yourself having a rapport with someone and then you realize like oh shoot i know a million people in common with this person or like we have a million things in common or like what is really super delightful is like you just enjoy talking to someone every day and then for whatever reason you're moved to like really examine their profile one day. (laughs) Some people would call it cyber stalking, but I just think you like, you're like, I like this person so much. I want to know more about them and yeah. see what, what else they're putting out there. And then you just find out the most like super fascinating things about people. And I love it. And I'm it
2: like, it is so fascinating. Cause there was somebody who started following me and it was like totally random. And I don't know if she came across my page and she started saying, like stuff on any jokes i posted like like her own jokes or whatever and i was like oh they're cool and then i followed them and it was like who is this person so i looked (laughs) at their bio and i was like oh they're like a business owner or something and she's from mexico and then i like googled her to google her businesses and then i saw i kept seeing stuff about like jessica alba Cause her, my, my, I ended up being good friends with this person. Her last name is Alba, and I was like, "Oh, you know, when I Google you, Jessica Alba comes up a bunch." And she goes, "Yeah, she's like uh, a cousin of mine." <laughs> I
1: was <laughs> like, That's "What?" So funny. You're like, yeah, I've seen that her I was, since I was a kid. Laugh. Yeah. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, I love, I love stuff like that when you're just like, "Oh, okay, all right, now I see." All the connections, and it is such a small world,
2: yeah. Um, let's talk Prince right now, sure. there was there were some things that you've worked with you've you mentioned something about having worked with the estate,
1: yeah, actually, I mean, I wouldn't call it working with the estate, but they were just interested in throwing like a listening party, uh, Hmm. for the, the originals album that came out, they were going to do a series of, of parties across the United States. And Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly how they were connected, um, with me. (laughs) Um, just, they were like, well, people that we talked to were like, um, maybe you could host the Los Angeles party. And, um, and I was like, Well, they said maybe you could host the party in your city and I was like, You know that my city is Los Angeles and not Connecticut <laughs> <In> Westport <laughs> Connecticut where I because I had just moved to Los Angeles and they were like, No, no, we know Los Angeles, yeah, got it. And so, um Yeah, so the the executors of his estate, the attorneys for his estate, were like, Okay, so in the we're in the planning stages of that. We're going to do a bunch of these across the country. And can you um, just research venues that you think would be great? And I'm like, yeah, that's great. That's what I do, you know? So um, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, and they were just like, you know, they, they, anything that you think would be appropriate. And I was like, well, what would be appropriate would be like somewhere that he dwelled when he was here. So, so I put together just this, list that was super fun to research of every place that he ever stayed or lived when he was here in Los Angeles, any place he performed, any place he hung out, any place he recorded and what they were then and what they are now and um and what the capacity for guests would be and what the facilities were and um ultimately it ended up not happening, which is kind of a bummer. Um because they just scrapped that plan to have like uh, across the USA listening parties. But now I am completely equipped and qualified to give anyone who comes to Los Angeles a 100% accurate, historically accurate Prince tour.
2: Wow. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. And I would love yeah. the opportunity to do that myself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we should do it. I mean, it's so, you know, I've try to go to Minneapolis, visit Paisley Park every chance to get and so I've gotten to do like, you know, sort of tours courtesy of other people that are from the area, but also self guided tours mm-hmm. um for things that we wanted to see and it's it's really, really fun. So
2: That's awesome.
1: Um it's just very cool. Yeah, one <laughs> one time we went to see the location of one of Prince's former homes and it was like <laughs> So we had to like park on the side of the highway and Mm -hmm. my friend and I were like, oh, we're going to like go up to the gates and it's these really great gates. If you're familiar, they have a heart and a peace sign like welded onto the gates and the gates are like what still, oh my God, my dog. Um, (laughs) The gates are what, the gates are what are still left standing. The home's no longer there, but we wanted to like go peek at the parcel of land or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. as we got closer to it, we saw that like some big public works project was happening and there were just like uh, huge pieces of conduit and they were like digging a trench and uh, you know, just, it was a lot. And we were yeah. like, my friend and I were sort of like, we're going to have to climb over all this construction stuff to look, but we're totally going to do it. And <laughs> so, while well, my husband like waited in the getaway car. And so we start walking towards, <laughs> we start walking toward this conduit and we're like, then guys like coming up to like walking toward us from somewhere out of nowhere. And they're like in hard hats and whatever. And we're like, Oh shoot. They're like coming to fuss us and like kick us off the property or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, they got up and they were like, and we were like, Oh, Hey, we just, um, wanted to like, look past, look at that gate and look. And they were like, Oh yeah, yeah we were coming to move the conduit for you so you could get closer. Oh wow. And we were like, Oh,
2: that's great. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I've not been there yet to, um, Minneapolis to see, I mean, I've been to Minneapolis, but I haven't been to, um, I've been to Minnesota, <laughs> not, not <Yeah>. min- <laughs> Minneapolis proper. And i I will be at Paisley park one day, but, uh, just haven't taken that tour yet. But a friend of mine took it recently and, um, she did the like whole VIP thing and it, I just, it sounded amazing.
1: Yeah, it's really great. I love to go for a celebration, which unfortunately is postponed or canceled yeah. this year, like everything. Um, but that's so cool. It's just like a four-day, you know, kind of amazing, like immersive experience where you're just, you know, it's kind of like on the idea of like if you're a fan of like Comic-Cons or things like you know, things like that, but it's mm-hmm. all devoted to, like, this one guy, and, right. and, um and so it's kind of cool, and you just get to, <laughs> my husband laughs, because, like, there's a lot of, like, shuttling, like, getting shuttled with buses from parking lots where you left your car to Paisley Park, and all that kind of stuff, and, like, one time we got on the shuttle, and like so many people that were going by, were like, "Oh, hey, it's me, Luther from Belgium," and what? "Hey, it's me." And my husband was like, "It is like your high school reunion." <laughs> and he was like, <laughs> "Why? <are you?" laughs> like, I?" He was like, "This is so fun, and it's so cool to be with all these people, but you actually know all these people." And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah of course I do."
2: Wow, how did we've been
1: talking for years?
2: Yeah, I, I um. <laughs> I do want to talk about your career, but I do want to know a little bit about your love of Prince. Um, So when did that start for you?
1: Um, I think when I was like seven years old, I saw him perform on American Bandstand. I used to go to my grandmother's house. I had like teenage aunts who loved, um, you know, anything they thought was cool, I thought was cool. And so I would go to my grandmother's on uh on weekend days and um watch american bandstand with my aunt and he performed i want to be your lover when i was seven and uh yeah that was it that was it and then they i my aunt had his first album so when i was like this guy is the best like i love him they were like oh we have this album whatever like don't you know don't let your mom hear hear you (laughs) listening to it or whatever. It's not even like – I don't even think – when you think of like the the 70s and early 80s, like I don't – double entendre wasn't – I don't think people were so – I don't know. People were not picking up on
2: it at all, I don't think. Yeah, they
1: weren't so hip to like, you know, what everybody was saying. I just
2: realized what Sledgehammer was about. Like literally since (laughs) social distancing started is when I realized – that that song is what it's about um it was That's an aunt so who funny. who got me into uh prince as well because when i was little and she would come visit and we'd go driving somewhere um uh i just couldn't help when i saying like we went driving somewhere just thinking uh so we went driving uh, <laughs> down by old <laughs> johnson's farm but anyway um she had I've done um
0: more
2: yeah, <laughs> uh. yeah. Um, we went to, uh, we would go to like the movies and she would put on either Michael Jackson's thriller or Prince's purple rain. And, yeah. um, we would all like, when we got in the car, we would ask for one or the other and, uh, we wore those cassettes out,
0: <laughs> but oh,
1: yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. That, that's such a, um, it's so interesting because like back then we didn't have like access To things we were interested in, Mm -hmm. it really had to come like with the help of, uh, especially if you were younger, it had to come with the help of, of someone in authority. So Mm -hmm. in my case, like my aunts were, were in charge of the TV and my aunts had like pocket money. So they had record albums that they bought that I had access to. And then like when the Purple Rain movie came out, like that's the kind of thing I didn't go to the movies much. I think like before I started like dating in high school, I'd probably only been to the movies a handful of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is definitely not the kind of movie (laughs) that my mom would have taken me to, but my parents were divorced (laughs) and my dad was not the best at making it to his visitation. So when he did make it, it, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of leeway and, and as much as he could like try to spoil me or, Mm. you know, or be the good guy. And so, I knew I think he like missed a couple of weeks where he was supposed to pick me up and, and hang out with me. And so when he finally did and was like, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to go see this movie. <laughs> you know?
0: yeah. um,
1: And and so he agreed and we went to see that movie. And he, my dad was a huge music fan um, himself didn't know exactly what i was in for but mm-hmm. i really wanted to like unzip my skin and run out of the theater was, like <laughs> sitting next to my dad watching certain parts of that movie like i just could not handle for real. i couldn't i yeah i can't you know watching like a weird sexy <laughs> sexy <scene next laughs> no
2: year. that's always weird
1: <laughs> but i will say like to my dad's credit and when that last shot happened, my dad just looked at me and he was like, I was like, oh, no, what's he going to say? And he was like, that kid is so talented. Thank oh, you wow. for introducing me to him. And I was like, oh, OK, great.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. But also like so apropos, I feel like of <laughs> just a, a dad <laughs> in that, that situation, like, yeah, I won't draw attention to the fact that maybe I shouldn't have brought you to this movie.
1: (laughs) Oh my God, yeah. it was far from the first or last place my dad should not have brought me that he did. (laughs) Uh,
2: So I love that we got to talk Prince, had to talk Prince, but I want to talk about your career. So speaking of getting interested in things, how did you get interested in writing comedy? Like when did that come about for you?
1: That was, just like I don't even remember. Like I, I was a huge fan of the Muppet Show and the mm. Dick Van Dyke Show reruns when I was a kid, and so like probably the Muppet Show before Dick Van Dyke. I'm guessing if I if I have to like cogn- sort out like my cognitive abilities at that mm-hmm. age, so it's probably like maybe five watching the Muppet Show, and I had a set. Like I thought the Muppet Show was real. You know, like I thought it was a show that the Muppets were putting on, so that's, oh, that's where cute. my brains were at. <laughs> um, so over the course of watching that show, when I started to read when I was like four or five, mm-hmm. five years old, maybe, um and I saw people's names at the end of the show and realized that they were people's names and that they were attached to jobs, then I was like, oh, this is okay. It's not that the Muppets are real and that they work on this show. It's that people, real people control the Muppets and put this show on and work. Um, and then, you know, watching Dick Van Van Dyke, the, you know, it centers around, uh, these people, you know, besides the home life stuff, I was interested in the work life stuff, which it centers around these people that write this comedy variety show. And there was a woman represented. And, uh, you know, so I wanted to be like Sally so yeah, so that just ever since then, like really little you know, I, I mean obviously everybody has moments where and I was no different where I was like, Oh, maybe I wanna be like a graphic designer or a fashion designer or mm-hmm. some type of artist or a journalist or a, you know, like a, a research scientist or something like that. <laughs> but um which is so funny that those were like those were more my abstract like maybe I could do that, but I think I always most naturally felt like I'm a writer, and I'm a comedy writer, and that's what I'll be. But, you know, if I really reach, I could be a scientist. (laughs) But, no. (laughs)
2: Well, you know, um, I feel like if somebody wants to do both now, then there's I feel like there's a lot of opportunity. Because there's so many... People who Over. are able to work on this or that who are not directly in comedy, but they're doing a comedy show. Like, I have a friend, he's been on the podcast, he's a veterinarian, and he uses humor a lot in his right. online presence. You know, like, that's such a big thing now.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting. It's it's interesting how many people are like, oh, this guy, like, everybody, you know, you're always hearing, like, I know this guy, he's a cop. He could be a stand-up comic. Mm-hmm. Um, this teacher could be a comedy writer for sure and it's probably true that's one thing that's great about twitter is there's so many incredibly funny and a lot of them get incredibly popular on social media and you're like oh what do you do and they're like you know i'm like a systems analyst or whatever and then you know that's really humbling <laughs> as someone that has made a career out of out of doing that but also you know i when someone made a career out of it, that's the other part of it. It's like, it's not enough to just be funny or have to like do the business side, which is, people got to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, that's a, that's a hard thing because figuring out how to like get in or, or, you know, figuring how to position yourself so that you can luck into it or whatever, you know, it, it, it's a lot of hard work. And I think that's the thing that trips people up the most.
0: Yeah.
2: There's so much work that you've done. I'm, not positive if you were in the writing world or pro- like production world first. It seems like it was writing first, though. But well, you were an assistant at Late Show.
1: Yeah, I was Dave's assistant at Letterman at the Late Show right. with David Letterman, um, and that was like right when the show started on CBS when he moved from NBC to CBS. That's oh, okay. when I started as an intern in his office. And um, after my internship was over and I was graduated from college, which was simultaneous, mm-hmm. um, he hired me to be one of his assistants. He had a handful at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that's where I started. Like, And that's where I started writing jokes when I was his assistant, just by being a pain in the ass and being <laughs> like...
2: <laughs> I wanted to ask about that because when I read, I was reading about you, I saw that Yes, you were an assistant, but you were also contributing jokes. So that's how you got your jokes on air was by pestering him about it.
1: Well, it kind of it was like I pestered him about letting me he was really big on writing letters. He's very old fashioned mm-hmm. um, about like being you know thankful and and really proper and you know manners about about stuff like that. Um, so he was really big on writing letters all the time, and they ha- were short letters. they came from him. The sentiments were from him, mm-hmm. and they were typed on an old fashioned typewriter, which was super <laughs> frustrating to like to type on a an electric typewriter when people were using computers and printers. Mm-hmm. But he would say, like, printers didn't look like typewriting back then. So he would be like, you can tell the difference. Yeah, you you can. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm not ready for that. So they had to be typewritten. And so I was writing these letters. And then I got to a point where I was brave enough or dumb enough or didn't know any better to be like, well, listen, if these letters are all coming from you, shouldn't they be funny? And he was like, I mean... Yeah. I mean, I guess, but they have to really be funny. Like I'm not going to just sign like letters that have bad jokes in them. So mm-hmm. get ready for feedback. So that was kind of, you know, <laughs> out how to write jokes effectively, because I would write these short letters with what I thought were jokes in them and then take them to him and he would read them over and get a red flare pen and, really it was like you know just getting an mfa in joke writing because wow. he'd be like you know like you <laughs> you front loaded this too much you telegraphed this punchline you have to put the funniest word last that's the way you know that's that's the usual order of things so all of these really like just comedy writing 101 rules he gave me um yeah just through that, that letter writing. And then I would like take his notes and go back and rewrite the jokes to be better. And, uh, and yeah, so that's how I learned how to write jokes. That's and then amazing. eventually, yeah. Then eventually I would like, at the same time, sort of simultaneously, there was this writer, Bill Schaft, who's from Massachusetts and he was always really great to me and really like took me under his wing, maybe because we were had, you know, Massachusetts history. He'd gone to school in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, So, and he just was kind of like that. Like he had a lot of, he was a stand-up comedian and he had a lot of young comedians. I know that really looked up to him that he had taken under his wing. And so I was like, you know, really just felt comfortable with him and felt like I could ask him anything. And then he would, uh, he would do the same thing. Just give me feedback and tell me like, you know, (laughs) what I could have done better and what he really liked and. Then just one day he was like, (laughs) one day he just came and he was like, I had given him a page of jokes in the morning and he was like, listen, we didn't really have enough jokes today. (laughs) So that was um, how that all started.
2: You were at Letterman, uh, not like after your internship for like three years? Yeah. And then where did you go? Did you go to Rosie's show right after that?
1: Yeah, it was, um, you know, I was at Letterman and, Um, you know, just back then it was a different time. It didn't really seem possible for more than one. I really wanted to be a writer and I had like tried to sort of make that known. I think it was sort of known, but I was, even though I was like getting material on the show in Mm -hmm. some ways, I was having a hard time, like just getting anyone to see me as like uh that girl who gets lunch but also writes jokes sometimes um yeah so yeah i mean i've
2: heard and i don't know i mean obviously i mean cuz even letterman has talked about this um and uh his his i don't want to put words in his mouth but i mean he basically owned up to not being better about uh that but, um yeah he
1: and yeah, he and I have talked about it recently, actually, oh, wow. interestingly, um, so, yeah, so that's kind of where where we were. And I just got the feeling like, oh, shoot, this is never gonna happen
0: yeah. here.
1: um, there was you know, there were women writers, but never more than one at a time, right. And you know, when there were like a dozen guys and one woman, mm-hmm. and you knew that that like woman spot was already taken. Um, and I liked that woman and wasn't trying to let like, right, you uh,
2: angle her tri- out. Yeah.
1: Trying to think of a way to push her in front of a boss or anything like that. I looked up to her. So, um, yeah. So one of our segment producers left to be the show runner of this new daytime talk show with Rosie O'Donnell that was coming up. And, um, and it's funny cause he and I weren't like best buds or anything like that. We mm-hmm. just, we weren't. Um, at that point, just because we like existed in, in different universes kind of, Mm -hmm. but, um, but he called, um, once he started at Rosie, uh, before the show started and he was like, listen, like I promised Dave and I even signed paperwork saying that I wouldn't hire anyone from late show to come work on this show. Um, but he was like, but I've, I'm, getting to know Rosie and she's looking for an assistant and I just feel like you would be like a great assistant for her mm-hmm. and if you're interested I will I will call Dave and ask him if you're allowed to come and and do this interview at least and so I was like okay yeah I want to do that wow and yeah and so you know I talked to Dave and he was like I don't want to hold you back like that's you know that's not something I'm interested in doing, so, like, go do your interview and go with God and good luck. Oh, wow. And, uh, yes, so, which was cool, and I met with Rosie, and we got along, and she hired me to be one of her assistants, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, and that was an interesting thing, too, because I didn't last very long being one of her assistants just because we weren't a great fit in that way, uh-huh. but the interesting thing is, like, she really always like thought of me as a writer I think and um right in my interview she asked me like you nobody wants to be an assistant like what do you really want to do and so I told her and so she would always introduce me even when I was like working at the desk um in her office like if someone would come by I remember Colin Quinn like came by to visit her from Saturday Night Live and Mm -hmm. she was like oh this Casey, um, she's a writer, She's a funny comedy writer, and he was like, "Oh, great!" And then you know, which was so cool because then I know that he always had that in his mind about me—not that I was like her assistant, that I was like an aspiring or or an emerging comedy writer. So
2: yeah, that I mean, was so I guess cool. that must have helped in regards to uh, what you were saying about people not seeing you as the girl who gets coffee. Like, there's yeah, someone who's it, seeing you as oh, this funny person.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, like, you know, and I was, like, even, like, oh, that's so interesting that you do that. And, like, because that's not my job. And she was, like, well, being a writer isn't your job. It's, like, what you are, you know? So, like, oh, well. do you write? And I was, like, yeah, I write every day. And she was, like, well, then you're a writer. Like, you know, it's your your paycheck doesn't determine who you are. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah, which was really great. And, you know, and then... I went very quickly from being like her assistant to when she decided like, uh, maybe you're not the right assistant for me because I was very precise and like really anxious about her being where she needed to be all the time. And she was Ah. more casual. Mm -hmm. Um, she was like, okay, this is like probably not working out for me, but like, let me make you, I was made like an associate producer, um, uh, for, One of the one of the departments for one of the producers, and then very quickly I became a researcher. And then after like a few months of being a researcher, an opening opened up on the writing staff, and I did a submission and was hired to be a writer in the first season of the show.
0: Awesome! Wow. I just remember
2: I knew in college who I think worked there. At that oh, really? time, I, it's been so many years since I've seen her, and I'm even brain farting on her name now. We weren't close, but she told me a couple of stories <laughs> about working there, um, and one was a, about how sweet Robin Williams is.
1: Oh uh, yeah, he was a really sweet guy.
2: Um, he,
1: I remember him from when I worked at Letterman because he would always like, like I would at the Ed Sullivan Theater, the um, the dressing room stacked. Or, you know, just off to the side of the theater and you have to like walk up and up and up these switchback stairs to get to every dressing room on every floor. And I used to stand outside of Dave's dressing room um, just waiting for him to like be ready to do the show or
0: mm-hmm. after the
1: show, ready to go back to the office or whatever. And so I'd just hang out there in case he needed anything to run and go get something. And Robin Williams would always, whenever he came around or whenever he came on the show, he would always just like hang out in that hallway and chit chat for the longest time. And Uh he was just darling and sweet. I love that story.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, how can you not love Robin Williams? Um, (laughs) So when you were there for, once you transitioned to writing for her, I mean it was because people there recognized you as having that potential.
1: I mean, I think I think I was very outgoing in mm-hmm. all of the other jobs that I had. I was always like and it was we were lucky because um you might know Andy Lasner from Twitter. He's mm-hmm. one of the producers of the Ellen show. He was a producer at Rosie and mm-hmm. what, one of the great things about him was that he was always looking for ideas like bigger ide- it's funny because he wasn't like the top producer at Rosie he was younger than two but for whatever reason he just always treated his job like it was the biggest job and so he was always endeavoring to make that show more of a spectacle and so he really was like a leader even though um, even though at that time he was just like a, like a supervising producer or whatever, but he was destined to, to be running the show somewhere. Um, and so he was so great because he would just take a good idea from anywhere. So as many ideas as I had that I would like including my, include in my research for ideas for guests to do or whatever, he would use them. And he was always really great about being like, that was Casey's idea. Casey came up with that. And, you know, and like, letting me try my hand at producing things. So I had had like a couple of really successful segments um, that, yeah, they were just successful segments that, that had been my ideas. Um, one I really loved because it was, uh, it was just, I don't know, we were looking for things to do with kids. Like Rosie loved kids and she wanted to mm-hmm. do things with kids. But that is kind of a challenge because kids are sort of like unpredictable and it mm-hmm. it can be hard to make them interesting and you know, and you can get into sometimes shows fall into a place where they wanna do like a lot of human interesty things, but it can be really exploitive because a lot of the shows were like showing like a kid that like loves you know, what a kid that like loves lawnmowers or whatever mm-hmm. and a lot of times that comes from like, you know, something that isn't like a happy thing, you know, Mm -hmm. like maybe a kid is, is struggling with something and, and, you know, and it's like a weird, lot of pressure. Like we would see parents putting a lot of like your kids, like, you know, I don't know, like a bat expert. And then you find out that like, it's not that happy and that fun for that kid
0: to come Uh.
1: sometimes and talk about, you know, so that we were in this weird place where we were like, Sometimes this is really fun if the kid is super into it, but we were getting as a show into like trying to find out if kids were super into like coming on and playing the piano or whatever. And if they weren't, then we didn't want to like encourage doing that, you know?
2: Yeah. And Um, that must be hard because if you ask a kid, they're going to think, well, mom or dad wants me to say yes. So like, so how do you even get through that?
1: Exactly. So Rosie was like super conscious of that. And that was like, that was an important lesson for us. Like I remember just being like, oh shoot, like a lot of these kids that we watch on these shows that it's so funny um, and everybody loves it so much and they're adorable. But like we were learning that like, oh, a lot of these kids aren't really into this and this isn't fun for them. So Mm. we were trying to like turn away from that and think of something that we could do with just regular kids that didn't require someone to have like some type of expertise or, or, you know, some type of parent, like trying to put them out there to gain, you know, momentary fame or whatever. (laughs) So I, anyway, I had this idea where I was like, well, it's always so funny. Like kids thoughts on just whatever kids ideas about how old people are, or like how (laughs) you do something or how you make something So I was like, what if we asked kids to come up with their like fantasy candy bar recipe and, you know, we could just ask a bunch of kids and then we could get a real candy company to make their candy, their fantasy candy bars. And then they could come on the show and demonstrate them. And that'd be like, you know, that'd be like a fun segment. So we were like, so, you know, Andy and Judy Gold, who was a producer at the show at the time and and had been a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They were like, yeah, let's do this. And so Judy was like, help me find these kids. So we went to a couple of schools. And met with these kids that these like principals were bringing to us, like they would, they would hand out worksheets in the schools asking, you know, in New York City schools asking like, what's your fantasy candy bars? And then what was happening is like, we would go to the school and the principal would bring some kids that she thought were the best um, Mm -hmm. to come and meet with us. And but we were like meeting with these kids and we're like, this is cute and they're nice, but it's not really like, it's not going to make interesting television. Mm -hmm. And I remember Judy being like, Oh, this seems like a good idea, but it turns out like it might actually be a dud and like, it's not going to be a good thing. And then I remember just being like, wait, let me try one more thing. And so I remember saying to the principal of this school, like, can I meet some kids that you would consider problem? (laughs)
0: Like, can I meet
1: some kids that are troubling to you that you don't see, you know, like, that you you don't see on the best terms every day? And can I see what the candy bars that they suggested? Mm -hmm. And she was like, I'm not sure if we want to reward that. And I was like, well, you know, then we'll just, we can just, I guess we'll try to go find kids at another school. And then she was like, oh, okay. you know, (laughs) So... You know, and so then, because I'm thinking, like, those are the kids that are always performers. Like, whenever you ask right. a performer, you know, how were you in school? They're always like, I was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so then we got, like, this, you know, this sort of ragtag bunch of kids in to talk to us about the candy bars that they were pitching. And then we were like, yep, these are the ones. And so we picked just this wild group of kids and they were just regular kids, but they were so, so, so funny, and every single one of them had, like, the wildest story, and we had um, this candy company in New York City, Lilac Chocolates, made their candy bars, and they got to come on and demonstrate them, and they were all so funny with Rosie, and it was just... I felt so proud of myself that we had like cracked it and solved it and made this really great segment and then the cherry on the top of this very long story that is probably not appropriate for your <laughs> podcast is that Bill totally Hartman Bill <laughs> Hartman came on the show shortly after that segment aired the candy bar segment and uh-huh. he asked the segment producer can I meet the person that came up with that? Because my kids and I watched it and we loved it so much. (laughs) And so the producer brought Bill Hartman to my desk in the research office and was like, here she is. This is who thought of the candy bar segment. And he was like, so Phil Hartman telling me like, Oh, my family watched it. We loved it so much. We thought it was so funny. And, um, it was just, it was so great just to see like little wild kids like <laughs> and their ideas of like, what would be good in candy. And I was like, Oh my gosh, such an honor to meet you. So great to meet For you. Sure, yeah. He's a legend. And, yeah, totally. And then, like, a week later, he sent me, like, pictures that his kids had drawn that I had up at my desk, you know, the whole, you know, hanging up on my bulletin board for for the rest of my time there. Wow. But, yeah, so that was, like, that was the kind of work I was doing. And then um, sort wow. of, like, a rumor went around that a writer or two were not going to be renewed or that they were moving on, like, when that first, probably the second writing cycle of the second 13 week writing cycle Mm -hmm. was up in that first season. And so I just decided to like do a submission packet, like get you know, I asked someone to get their hands on the submission packet for me and I turned mine in and yeah. And I just got hired to be a writer.
2: Wow. So you kind of went from a, I mean, what was your role before? Like when you did the, the, the candy bar bit,
1: I was a researcher, so that job is like when, you know, Julia Roberts gets booked on the show.
2: Right. And then someone researches you, the
1: Exactly. You make like a dossier about uh, Julia Roberts. What and, they've done you know, recently. And exactly. What they just everything. Like it was really comprehensive there uh-huh. at Rosie. Um, I, one of the last research packets I did was on Elizabeth Taylor and it was really like writing like a grad thesis because she had such a long career and, you know, and always the fear is, is that you, you know, it was a live show. and you want to send Rosie out there with every piece of information that there is to have about a person, you know? And so, um, yeah. So it, so Elizabeth Taylor had such a long career and it was like such a huge undertaking where you're ba- mm-hmm. basically writing like this thesis on, on this person. And, um, and I literally remember hitting print on that, <laughs> getting ready to like copy it and distribute it to all the producers and Rosie and the book are coming in and being like, Elizabeth Taylor just canceled. And I was like, oh <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, w- I literally screamed and Rosie ran in and she was like, what? what and happened? I was like, nothing. <laughs> and she was like, no, what is it? And I was like, nothing. It's so stupid. I had just finished Elizabeth Taylor's research packet and she canceled. It. And she was like, Oh my God, of course you're screaming. I don't thank yeah.
2: you. Was it always that the like research on that show? Always that intensive. Cause I remember one time watching the show sting was on with his wife, Trudy Styler. And he said, she said something like, oh, well, you're such a good actor. I really loved you in the movie Buster. And he started laughing and she was like, what? And he was <laughs> like, that was Phil Collins.
0: And oh she was like, God. oh, my
2: gosh, I, I, I don't really do research. <laughs> and I just go with my knowledge of people a lot of times on here." air. So I, it's funny that there's like so much research in the like, like being done. And that still happened once. That might yeah, have been years I mean, later it,
0: though.
1: It definitely happened. It <laughs> definitely happened. And but that's like your biggest fear. Like, you know yeah. Do you remember do you remember like was it Kathy Lee Gifford asking Martin Short how his wife uh, was? Right. Was it Martin and it was, Short and she, after and she, was, like, she had she,
2: died? It had been like a yeah. year. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and so like as a researcher, that is your biggest fear, like yeah. allowing something like that to happen on live television, and I'm sure, you know, and sometimes it just happens and it's an accident and like, you know, no shades, Kathy Lee, like oh, he's yeah. researching, you know, she's reading research on how many guests. I mean, not anymore. She's she's not doing the show right. anymore. But but had know, so um, much
2: that she was going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's yeah, exactly. That's a tough gig. Um, and I even heard a story about a politician who I won't mention because he's not a good politician. But a professor of mine told a story in college once about um, his uh, my professor's dad was in politics. And it's, it was like a he didn't work for uh, this senator. He, he was it was, I guess, just on Capitol Hill in some capacity. And they had met. And, um, so when my professor met this politician, um, he made nice with the politician and just said, I'm so-and-so my father's so-and-so. And And, like years later, this politician sees my old professor, uh, just like standing, waiting for like a a subway train or something. And and the senators looking at him like, I know this guy from somewhere. And, uh, my professor sees him from the corner of his, his eye, just sort of like, that senator just watching him and then the senator Mm -hmm. walks up and shakes his hand and says his name and says hey how are you how's your mom my professor is saying this is what he was doing when he was looking at me he knew that he recognized me he was trying to remember where then he remembered when and then he said oh yes his father worked in capitol hill his father is dead ask about his mom because his father had passed away since originally meeting that that professor
0: right you have to
2: sort of have that sort of information on you when you go out to interview somebody because that sort of stuff happens. you got to remember to think, okay, everybody may know this about this person. However, circumstances have changed or there's new information to go with. And let's remind people of that when we interview them.
1: I mean, I'm sure he thought that I was nuts, but I worked for Andy Cohen for years. um, Uh, Yeah, I was going to mention that. That Yeah, you
2: were a producer uh, there for years. (laughs)
1: Yes, yeah, I was one of the co-executive producers of that show, and I was also kind of the floor manager because it, it was such a, such a small show that our our yeah it started with like four people, people
2: at first, yeah. and you were one of those yeah, four people, the, right?
1: one of the four people, and so I was the person who was always out on the floor, and I would always like right before the show went live, I would just be like, I know you know, I know you read the research, but you know this person's mom has passed away or this person just lost their dog or mm. you know just whatever like whatever i knew i would just like right before it. and i know he was always like you're insane but Mm-hmm. If he had ever said like, "Oh, how's your dog Bluebell doing?" and to have someone say live on the show like, "Well, actually, we just had to put her down." Yeah, like you know, I just never wanted him to feel that. You know, yeah. I never wanted because I've I've been there when when that's happened, especially in live television. So yeah, mm. so that's what research is basically. It's like a recap of someone's career, every controversy, every triumph, and. For God's sake, please try to find out who died recently.
2: Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. There's Because I love going to watch tapings of late-night talk shows because I'm such a nerd. And when I'm sitting in there, <laughs> <laughs> like I love the shows and I love the comedy, but I really am watching the producers and the crew and the band and just how it all comes together. I'm fascinated with it. And uh, seeing Fallon and Seth Meyers and Stephen Colbert – I, you know, we see the segment producer come after uh, and, you know, well, before an interview or before another segment and just prep. And it, I just yeah. realized just how massive of a production it is. It's not, you know, you don't get any idea that there's that there are that many people there when you're just watching on television, because sometimes the host will talk to the band. They'll talk to uh, like Letterman had a couple of people off camera that he would talk to. Everyone yeah. talks to their director. But you don't know, that's like, I mean, you know, I mean, the the universal person does not know uh, how many people are really behind the scenes
0: there.
1: Yeah, so many people like you just, you know, and yeah, and I've always been that person like on the floor talking To whoever talking to the host, that's a role that I enjoy. But there's also like a a lot of times they're wearing like a little in-ear monitor and there's a whole room full of people Mm -hmm. somewhere that you can't see talking to them. And, you know, and it's about like a million things. It's about like that information and what the guests came there to promote and and getting them to talk about that in a natural way but also like the way that your body is angled and Mm -hmm. you know just a million things that that you have to keep in mind and and also like in the context of like what's going on in the world you know um so Mm -hmm. so doing like a day and date talk show or a live show you know it's especially if it's live um, you're actually at an advantage because you're just reacting. Like I did, we did an episode of watch what happens live the night that Bin Laden oh wow. uh, was killed and it was so insane because Willie Geist and I want to say like, oh, it was some, like some real housewife um, Alexis, <laughs> from Orange County were, were the guests both supposed to be on. Oh. Yeah. And, and Willie Geist was like, I actually think like, I have to go and see if they need me. Like at yeah. NBC, I don't think I can. And, and moreover, like my producer self was like, for Willie Geist, Career as a (laughs) news person, I don't think he should be on this show tonight. Like, this
2: should not be. It would look so bad. (laughs) Yeah, you know what what I mean? What were you doing tonight?
1: (laughs) Exactly. Just drinking cocktails and whatever. (laughs) Willie, luckily, made that decision on his own, but that's where my head was at. I was Mm. like, for the protection of our friend, Willie Geist, Mm -hmm. I feel like even if he wants to stay here, we shouldn't let him. But anyway, yeah, we went and just did. It was insane. Like, we actually kind of broke the news that wow. Bin Laden, we broke the news to, like, a you know, to our audience, anyway, that, that Bin Laden was dead.
2: Wow. Which is
1: insane. There's yeah. so much
2: stuff that you have seen and done that, you know, I, I feel like the average person has not. Because you've had all of these different roles, you've, you know, being an assistant, being a researcher, uh, going, moving into writing, and you have continued to do that for years, but also uh, producing on the side of that for so many years. There's so many different stories you have. I feel like you should write... <laughs> Uh, just you should be the next person to write a biography on television or something, or just like at least your experience in television, like the next Bill Carter or something like that. We're just like, Well, here's some (laughs) things that happen because, uh, they're, they're, I just even from not even just my nerd wanting to read that stuff, I think also would be like really educational for people. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting for sure, and it's interesting to me just how much it all has changed. You know, yeah. since since um, I started, it's it's really been like a revolutionary time, and like they don't even call it television anymore. I don't think. Mm. I think it's just called programming or content yeah. now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and so I'm I'm right there with like kids with YouTube channels trying to figure out how to <laughs> get people to watch things that i make so that is also humbling (laughs) yeah um but yeah i've I've been really lucky to to, you know sort of work on a whole range of really big deal network and syndicated shows and really smaller shows that have still made this like incredible cultural impact the last show that i was like one of the you know, one of the developing voices of with busy Phillips and Tina Fey Mm -hmm. tonight on E that was a huge deal for me. Mm -hmm. Um, even though it didn't end up necessarily having a a long run. Um, I think it, it highlighted a lot of the things that concern me as Mm -hmm. uh, a content creator. And, um, and also it, you know, it might not have had the biggest audience, but the audience that we did have, it's, I still get tweets every day of people saying like, like there's a hole in my heart mm-hmm. <laughs> where um, it was interesting. I want to, I won't say the name of a person, but I recently had a meeting with a very famous person who was interested in, in doing something. And I wouldn't think that that person would have been at all familiar with any of my work necessarily mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because of the, the sphere that they exist in. but Yeah.
2: She, I mean, like best week ever is VH1 and then, you know, there's Bravo with watch what happens live. So yeah, think yeah. maybe they wouldn't have known about you.
1: Yeah, exactly. But, but then, yet they did, but, you know? Yeah. And, and she was like, I cannot believe how I, you know, she was just like, I'm sorry about busy tonight being canceled. I cannot believe how devastated people were when that show was canceled. And I was like, Oh, thanks. That's so nice. And she was just like, no, but I mean, devastated. She was like, like people get upset when TV shows are canceled. That is normal. But she was like, but I like everyone I knew that watched that show was devastated. And I was Mm like, "Oh, (laughs) and I was like, that makes me feel good, but also terrible. But that, you know, but yeah, that's how that's, still kind of how um how it is like just it's like going on a year now and i I still every day people are like messaging me like i miss it i kept every episode on my dvr and you know so so that's a good feeling
2: yeah yeah and, and busy seems like the best
1: busy is so great and she and i still really work closely together on a lot of things and and future things and Working with Tina Fey was wonderful. She's one of she's my heroes. So Good
2: gosh. I, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Tina Fey.
1: Yeah, she's just, she's so great. She's really just funny, but also really kind. And um, and one of the things that I just love about her so much, and I don't think I ever told her this, um, but she, I worked a lot writing for Joan Rivers when Joan Rivers was alive.
2: Right, I wanted to mention that and talk about that, <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, But Tina reminds me of Joan Rivers in the way that she's always interested in how other people are thinking of things. Like, you know what I mean? Like, she's not afraid to say like here's what i think and Mm -hmm. and she is just like an expert and she's like a joke machine She just you can't stop her like if you ask her Mm -hmm. for help with a joke you'll get a hundred and they're all great and a hundred times better than anything you could come up with (laughs) and so that's that's just incredible but what's So, but my favorite part about her is she's always really interested in how other people are thinking of things and seeing things. And I think that's in the Mm. interest of becoming even better at what she does. And it's just amazing to me because I, you know, I see people all the time that are like at the top of their game. And I think that they really think like, I have this cracked, I know what I'm doing I can just continue on. Like I can coast on this and this will be like a very successful life for me. But Tina reminds me of Joan in that I don't think she's ever going to be that person. Mm-hmm. Like I think she's always just going to be like, well, what do people think today and in 2020 and what do people think in 2025? And, mm-hmm. you know, and Joan was like that right up until the end of her life. Like she just, kept evolving so yeah you know, she
2: was always she's been around she had been around for decades and she was yeah. always something to pay attention to and to listen to. you know always someone who uh, had who put something out that people cared to listen to and not just people of her generation but just anybody
1: right I right. was you know she just came from this generation where it's interesting because you know the more that we become like sensitized, to the flight of other people, mm-hmm. you know, or pe- I guess what people like to say that that's being woke, you know, you get to be more woke and, or, you know, other people would like pejoratively say that's being politically correct or whatever, whatever you want to call it. I think it's really just becoming more sensitive to having feelings for and listening to people who maybe aren't exactly like you and right. to and believing what their experiences are and, you know, and not wanting to do anything to harm people. And so like, I think she always, so I think a lot of those people would probably like go back and look at something that Joan said, um, you know, at one time or, you know, many things that she said and be like, oh, she's problematic. Um, Which is true. Like a lot of the (sighs) things that she said in the past wouldn't hold up. You know, wouldn't hold up in in twenty twenty. But the thing that was amazing about her is that she was never like, if she did some bit or whatever that like caused outrage or whatever. You know, I've heard a lot of comedians that are like, oh, you know, screw that, politically correct. You can't say anything. You can't say a joke anymore. She was never like that. Like mm. we would have talks where she'd be like, I did this bit. It kind of fell flat. Or like I got, I took some heat for this bit. Um, but let's talk about like what it is, like, mm-hmm. let's inspect like what it is and what about it upset people. And I think she was coming from it. Like, you know, I want to say something, like I want to make a joke, but for her, it was never one of the reasons I loved writing for her. And one of the ways that I love to write is like, it's not just, a, you know, sometimes it's enough just to make a funny joke. Like if it makes you laugh and it's funny and it delights you, that's lovely. Mm-hmm. But like when you're trying to make a, you know when you're trying to make a statement you're trying to like have some cultural impact um you know you it's not just enough to say something funny you have to be saying something that is also funny and so <laughs> that was a lot of what what joan was doing. And so she always had like a, her reasoning for something and whether or not you agreed with that reasoning. Okay. Then, but she was always willing to have that discussion. Mm-hmm. And so I really felt fortunate because i also evolved as a writer a lot of that stuff that i wrote early on would not hold up and i would be like ashamed if i knew you know if i went back and read a lot of it today i would just be like this wasn't cool but i know better now
2: yeah i mean it's such a like i mean it's true for comedy of any era you know it's stuck in its time period and um i you know that's it's it's not in the same context as you know as today is i mean there's some stuff right that can still play but it that's it depends and especially if you're trying to like yeah i mean especially if you're trying to say i don't know if you're if you're like a joan rivers or don rickles like you're you're trying to be a little bad but you know that that context of what's bad at that moment is um so different
1: yeah, you know, you're trying to be edgy, and you know, um, and yeah, and trying to be memorable and to say something. And I think that's where you know, when you apply all these lenses to it, well, when you apply a lot of lenses to something, something sometimes the danger is you wind up saying nothing, you know, mm-hmm. which is like that's not great, that's not funny or interesting, and also it's not really helpful sometimes when there's like a problem that we see in the world to just be like, well, it's all too complicated. So I choose to say nothing. (laughs) Um, I don't think that's a great, (laughs) a great position to be in, but, um, sometimes when you say nothing, you can listen better and you can hear and you can learn, especially if you're willing to like really take in what someone's generously offering you, um, about what they've experienced. And so Mm -hmm. then you can like apply that and, you know, and people say all the time, when you know better, you do better. And there was a time when we didn't know better and maybe we should have, and maybe that should have come along faster. Um, maybe we should have evolved on that faster, but, Mm -hmm. um, and that goes for like talking, you know, for, for like doing humor about, Anything, including yourself. Like, there's a lot of things I think that Joan would do. um, Joan would do material on that wouldn't fly today that was about herself, you know, just because she was. So, um, just, I, I just think it would be painful to people to watch her be so tough on herself. She was toughest on herself, but anyway, yeah, she was a lot of material is stuck in time, but she was never stuck in time as a person. She was really, 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 um, yeah, just always trying to learn and always trying to evolve. And and that's, that's the part of her that I see in Tina Mm -hmm. and also, um, yeah, she was just, like, Joan Rivers and Mr. Rogers were, like, the two people I think that I've ever met in my career that really could just, like, see into your soul.
2: Oh, wow. <laughs>
1: like it, it I was really just
2: thinking like, about Mr. Rogers. So,
1: when Mr. did you Rogers. meet him? Mr. Rogers was a guest on Rosie a few times.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, and I worked with him both times. I think both... I think he was on two times when I was at Rosie and I think that I worked with him both times and I don't know why exactly I worked with him, like whether he was tr- wanting to sing like a song that I had written or something. Cause mm-hmm. I wrote a ton of music at Rosie, a ton of songs and song parries. Um, but yeah, it, but I also just think it's like one of those things like everybody at Rosie knew that I was had an interest in children's television. And that's mm. why I started. Um. And that like, you know, Sesame Street and the Muppets and Mr. Rogers were big deals for me. So I'm sure it was probably just like, somebody being like, Casey loves Mr. Rogers. what <laughs> like, make sure that they have, uh, uh, you know, have some time together or whatever. Um, so anyway, yeah, he just was, like, really great and was, like, if you, if you ever find yourself, for whatever reason, moving to Pennsylvania and you want to work for us, that's an option, you know. Um, just very cool. And, like, uh-huh. we stayed in touch a little bit. And when I had my older son, he sent, like, an amazing – care package from the land of make-believe and we still have all the puppets and you know yeah just a really like very sweet and incredibly thoughtful like just everything you've ever heard is exactly who he was and and you know and really made a huge impression on me um because like of the rosie show um the kind of show that it was and because and you know because of things that i like picked up from you know <laughs> the Rosie show was about bringing joy to people mm-hmm. and um and you know, just letting people like let loose and embarrass themselves and kind of let their like nerd and freak flags fly mm-hmm. and I think it really informed like I don't think you get a Jimmy Fallon without a Rosie O'Donnell, yeah, I mean that really was I, and, that
2: was automatically what came to mind was uh because you said it was about bringing joy was like that's all Jimmy Fallon is. About. I read a quote today where he said that, and I think Ellen. Also, it's similar in that regard of just, like, trying to, like, bring some joy to people and a little bit of happiness.
1: It's interesting. I've talked to Rosie about it a couple times, and she's so great. I mean, the people that make Ellen are a lot of people that make Ellen are people that worked on Rosie yeah, and Andy Andrew Lassner especially. Yeah. 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 And Mary Connolly was one of our segment producers at Letterman. So I know her from there. So I always like, you know, Rosie chose to retire from the Rosie show. Um, mm-hmm. so, and she had just kind of had enough of like, just, it's very hard to make five grind. shows a week and five live shows. And, and she had her kids and, um, you know, so she made that choice to kind of walk away from it. But I have asked her in uh, some of the times that I've seen her, like when you see Ellen, like, does it ever like, is it ever like a little bit of a rock in your shoe that it is kind of like the show that you were doing? Kind of like Key and you know, pill
2: was for Dave Chappelle.
1: Yeah, maybe. And she's always like, no, no, I'm so happy for her. And it's so hmm. exciting. And that's so great. And I'm like, that's great. I'm glad that she feels that way, but it is a really similar show in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, when your whole mission in life is to bring joy to people, like I guess that ownership isn't like super important. And I hope that she knows on some level that, yeah, I don't think an Ellen DeGeneres exists without Rosie. I don't think Jimmy Fallon exists without Rosie. Mm -hmm. And so that's what that show is about. And then watch what happens live. Was about like actually bringing people, these super fans of these shows and these people <laughs> into the process. And right. so Andy would always say, like, people just want to be heard. And that was a really important lesson for me, too. So these are all things that I took like to Busy Tonight and just that, that people want to feel joy and people want to be heard and also mm-hmm. that people want to be seen and women want to have a show that's made expressly for them. And if men want to watch it, that's amazing.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
1: you know, most of the show's default are made by guys for guys,
0: mm-hmm.
1: kind of like just, you know, by the nature of who's hosting and mm-hmm. who's behind the scenes. And then like, if a woman wants to sit on the couch next to a guy and watch it, okay, cool. But it's not for her, you know? Right. So that's what we were kind of trying to do with Busy and just make people feel joy and make people feel less alone and make people feel heard and, and so you know. So I think that's why all... people
2: were devastated by her show <laughs> getting, by your your show with her getting cancelled because it was a voice for people. I mean it, and some of I guess part of the reason her show existed was because of what she was doing on, was it Instagram? Like some yeah. of her experience there which is I mean, that's social media is I want to be heard myself and I'm going to connect with other people who express something I relate to. So, you know, that that all tracks. And, um, you yeah. know, I was I was going to mention, you know, there was seems like there is a portion of your career where you were uh, writing primarily and then there is a portion where you were doing a bunch of production work like you know when you're working at, yeah. uh, watch what happens live and then there's this time where it's both where <laughs> you're doing both like with yeah. best week ever or busy tonight you know like it's you're you're utilizing all of the things that you've learned from all these different people i mean you had even going back to letterman showing you how to write a joke yeah which is an amazing yeah, it's story really,
1: <laughs> it's really lucky it's really lucky to be able to like you know just to know how to do both of those things and and we didn't talk much about best week ever but that shoot that was such a fun time in my life like to be working with people that were like some people who were like my personal like not you know not just like historic Personal heroes like Joan Rivers obviously she's right, world well, yeah. famous or whatever but like when you're just talking about like pure comedy skill and like who was the biggest deal at the time like to work with Paula Tompkins was someone that I was just like he is my comedic ideal you know mm-hmm. and and his evolution as a performer is mm-hmm. is my comedic ideal and so to like get to work with him and write for him and be friends with him was amazing. And then a lot of these people that were just starting out that I was like, you know, it at some point, I don't know how this happened. I was like, I came in to write on the show, but I was also older and I had worked on some bigger shows. And I think it became like apparent at some point that I would be able to like take on more responsibility than just like writing and Mm. and producing or whatever. And so they were. (laughs) And because I think like some people didn't have a ton of experience on that show, that was like their first. TV experience or, or one of their first or second shows that they had worked on. I think like one of the things (laughs) that kind of got shunted off to me was a hard job, which was, um, firing talent (laughs) Uh, and you know, that wasn't working out or trying to save talent that was like maybe on the bubble and also casting new talent. So that became you know, that became a thing that was my responsibility and it was interesting, you know, it it was, it was really interesting just to be able to, you know, sort of take a hard look at what was working and what was being used on the show and what was making an impression on people and then sit down with this kid, John Mullaney and
0: mm-hmm.
1: put him on tape and then, you know, bring him to executives and have them, like, all vote and to have some people be like, okay, if you want to put that kid on, you can put that kid on, <laughs> and then have other people be like, no, I don't think I don't think this is the right way to go and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, that was really the first time where I was like, I don't know what I was thinking because I needed that job at the time. I had a family, but I was like, I think, like, it was like a thumbs down on John Mulaney. Like, in the end, mm-hmm. we were not going to hire... John Mulaney and I don't know why it just like set me off and I was like went into this office of executives and I was like if we don't put this person on this show I guess I quit because I don't know what we're doing <laughs> like, wow. you know like I, I feel like I am not familiar with the mission that we're trying to accomplish if we don't put this person on the show and they were like okay Miss Dramatic like we can put him on the show go ahead <laughs> you know like
2: and now they're they've got to recognize how right you were <laughs>
1: Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure everybody is all doing their own thing. I'm sure everyone <laughs> now thinks that it was their idea to put John Lee <laughs>
2: Oh show. Well, that would be definitely a TV executive's
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. MO.
2: Uh, yeah, no, I brought him in. I remember seeing him and bringing him in. I was <laughs> like, <"Yeah>, what? <laughs> well, you
1: know, it's so funny. I remember, like, you know, Nick Kroll was so great, and he was so funny as, like, a panelist on the show. But then I remember going to see him do like improv and these like little one man shows that he was doing and he was doing so many of these incredible characters mm-hmm. that I was like, shoot, I really wanna like use these characters on the show. And so I just remember like trying to do so many things, trying to do bits on Best Week Ever, trying to like suggest pilot. For Nick Kroll mm-hmm. and I just remember like this one executive being like I don't get it I don't think people are going to like it whatever blah 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 and um, me just being like damn you're wrong though um, and I wish I, I wish I had had like the tools uh, at the time like better tools to just be like let's take this somewhere else but you know I was still like kind of newish at, at, at trying to like sell shows or whatever and so um, so, you know, so we, it ended up like not really going anywhere and Nick stayed with the show for my entire time there. And we were so lucky to have them, uh, to have, to have all those guys to have him particularly. And, but I was so happy when curl show like was a show Yeah. and it's so hard to like, it's so hard to resist not going into your contacts and calling that executive and being like, Oh, I just want to make sure you saw, um, Kroll show the very successful (laughs) show known as Kroll show featuring all those characters that you quote said I don't get it Uh, you know but it's like but also like I I failed to cast Amy Schumer on best week ever like I think she came in for an inner she came in for like a little tape thing and I don't know we could only like hire so many people that round or whatever and you know So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, sometimes, I
2: mean, it's sort of like SNL didn't hire Jim Carrey, you know, I mean, it's
1: exactly
2: there's always somebody like that.
1: And I don't the weird thing is, like, I don't even remember. I couldn't even say, like, I'm sure she doesn't remember coming in, (laughs) Um, but I'm sure she was very young. And I'm sure that we probably went really quickly through whatever, like making a little tape with her. Um, But I'm sure we were also, like, looking for something, and maybe we had, like, just hired a, you know, somewhat similar... Right, I mean,
2: that's one of the casting things that people don't really fully understand sometimes. It's like, well, we have, like, it's, it's really like putting together a team, a football team or something It's like, well, we have a quarterback. <laughs>
0: like right, we, right. we
2: have a great quarterback. We don't we're not looking for a quarterback right now. We need a different position right. field. And so I, I get that, but it is always like you know you look back, you could say like oh we could actually had Amy Schumer on our show. Um, that right. could be tough, but right. it doesn't necessarily mean it's the wrong decision. It's when you look at someone as talented as Nick Kroll and say, I don't get it that you're just wrong.
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> like There's right.
2: just has nothing to do with the position you need to fill. You're just wrong. Um, yeah. Well, I could talk to you for a million years and I want to, but um, we, I guess can't uh, because of time uh, and how that works. Well, but <laughs> yes, I would, lo- I would definitely love to talk to you more. Um, but this seems like a good time to transition into the end where we try to create something together. However, there's so much, uh, that we've talked about. I'm not sure what we could create. Um, I kind of want to go back and think of if we were going to do a show involving Prince, what it would be. Yeah. Let's, let's think about it that way. Like uh, thinking about the shows that you've worked on and done, even including like the best week ever, if it was going to be a Prince, focused show, what would we create?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things, one of my greatest regrets with, you know, losing, I mean, obviously, losing Prince at all is devastating. Yeah. and um, and But, you know, he was just gone too soon.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the things that I'm really sad about is that he did not get to do a ton of film scoring, Mm. um, which I just think he was, he would have been incredible at um, Mm -hmm. if he, he he could have had like a whole side career, you know, he had like a million side projects and million side careers, like songwriter, composer, you know? Yeah. So I, I, yeah, exactly. Um, But I always think that he would have done really charming children's material.
2: Yeah, the, I'm sure, I mean, as someone who loves Muppets, I'm sure you saw when he did Starfish and Coffee with the Muppets. Oh my gosh,
1: yes. Of course. That's one of the most joy-filled things
2: I've ever seen.
1: Yes. The the that whole episode of Muppets Tonight. And he was also like a big fan of animation and um yeah. <laughs> and he loved the Muppets. Yeah. The first live performance of Paisley Park was a touring. Um, performance of Muppet Babies live that he called in really? to like perform for for people's families. yeah. so wow. so that was always a thing for him. Um, I, and okay, that
2: explains I, Questlove's story about trying to DJ and and <laughs> Prince thing. Like, oh, put on Finding, I think it was Finding, finding Dory. Nemo. Oh, it was yes. Finding Nemo. Finding <laughs>
1: ne- Maybe Finding Nemo or or Dory. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I think that he probably would have been um, would have been an excellent person to build a children's show around because Mm -hmm. not only did he have this like incredible imagination I think he was really always in touch with what it felt like to be young and Mm -hmm. felt like to be the type of kid he was who was Mm -hmm. kind of an outsider Mm -hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I love um writing for kids, right? I love to like write a young adult novel once in a while.
2: right We didn't um, get around before, to talking about uh, that I that you've love, written a couple of books and you're doing yeah, I mean it's
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, um you know, and it's because like I think like one of the I just don't have that thing where i like I remember <laughs> i I just remember everything and I remember very clearly what it feels like what it felt like to be four or five or mm. 15 or you know I just I'm really in touch with that and I think that he was always really in touch with that which is one of the reasons why his lyrics are like next level some mm-hmm. are filthy but right but um you know but he has some really beautiful just turns of phrase that are like wow like you know just the way that he was able to describe feelings in Mm. in so few words and so I really think that that would have um, been like a transformative project for him a children's show with Prince
2: I completely agree and I think you would be great at running that especially with your love of all things television, kids television what would the name of the show be?
1: Oh my gosh Prince show
2: I guess is taken by the SNL (laughs)
1: staff Yeah. Um, hmm, that's a good question. Maybe Dream Factory?
2: Ooh. Yeah. That's a good you one. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> Maybe like a Willy Wonka type of, you know, fantasy land, which is kinda like what Peasley Park is and mm-hmm. and, you know, there are several rooms and areas of Peasley Park that had at one time or another been devoted to kids and like play spaces for kids and So I think that that would have been, yeah, like maybe a mostly musical show called Dream Factory.
2: I love it. (laughs) I'd watch it. There it is. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Casey. I adore you, and you've been so great to me and really encouraging, and I just think you're the best.
1: Uh, My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's so nice to talk
2: to you. She's so great, right? She is one of my favorite guests and just a big inspiration. So great. She has a couple of books that you can check out, United Jokes of America and Jane Jones' Worst Vampire Ever, You can also follow her on Twitter, at Casey, and on Instagram, at Instacase. Check out the bio to spell those right. Also, follow the podcast, at There It Is Pod, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and subscribe to our Comedy Life newsletter. We made this newsletter with comedians, actors, and creatives in mind. It offers tips on comedy, performance, and life, like how to work out in your home, best practices for your job search, and more. Link in bio to find out more. Pop Talk episode next week.